God's word. Reading from John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. This is the word of God. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Bow with me in prayer. Father, as we come around this word, your word, this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive from it. We need it. Oh, Lord, how we need your word to guide us, direct us, and restore us. We pray this for your glory and our joy. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder how many of us have ever looked through a kaleidoscope. Honestly, it's been years since I've looked through a kaleidoscope. But this week in my study for this text, I kind of felt like I was looking through a kaleidoscope. If you've ever seen through one, you know that there's an image in it and that as you shake it or some of them you twist, you see the same image, but with really complementary angles and views. Well, I I posit this morning that as we go through John, we're going to see Jesus again and again from more angles and new angles. This morning, the title I've, I've given this message is Jesus through an Old Testament kaleidoscope. I think when we see this text from an Old Testament perspective, we see many marvelous complimentary views of who Jesus is. Now, so far, we're just getting into John, but we've talked about Jesus as the word, the pre-existent word of God who was and is and is to come. We've talked about Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What a rich and deep, profound realization for the Jews who are here in our text today that saw this and the disciples. What a blessing to the Gentiles who this ministry of Jesus was beginning to point towards and to reach. Today we'll see Jesus come into his father's house, his temple, and he witnesses its misuse and he cleanses it. And he points to how he, Jesus, will restore our right worship permanently. All the while he knows the fickle and fledgling belief of those who are around him. And before we go further, we need, to, we need to do just a little background, okay? Last week, we ended our text and we see that Jesus finished his water into wine in Cana. He went to Capernaum, which was kind of, in this point of Jesus's life and ministry, was kind of home base for him and his family. And after Capernaum, we see that he traveled, it says up, even though it was south. I always think, I'm from Minnesota, I always think of up north. But Jesus came south, but it was up geographically because it was higher, right? The Temple Mount, this, this uh, 
city was on a mountain, basically. And Jesus, Jesus traveled south to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This was a significant time in the life of any Jew when it was Passover, especially in Jerusalem, where God's temple was. There was many people, not just Jesus, who would be making that pilgrimage into Jerusalem for Passover. Now, the Passover, briefly, was a time when the Jews remembered their rescue out of Egypt, right? We remember the Passover week when the Passover night, when because of the blood of a lamb over the doorposts, the Israelites were saved. The firstborns in their family were saved from death. And many, many Egyptians, firstborn died. And this was ultimately what God used to free the Israelites from Egypt. So let's talk about the temple for a minute. In the institution of Judaism, the temple was the center of everything. Worship was focused there through sacrifice and prayer. Taxes were collected there. Order and structure were a priority. There was a really Jewish, Jewish governance and judicial review all happened centered around this temple authority. Again, it was, it was the center of their whole life. And Jesus, picture this. I picture Jesus being excited to come to Jerusalem for the Passover, to, to remember God's rescue of his people. And he walks into the outer courts of the temple and he sees them filled with animals and a marketplace and money changing. Now, this, this wouldn't be unnecessary. Again, with many coming from a foreign land, these people needed to bring their sacrifice for their family. And so think of traveling 100 miles with a goat or a sheep or their sacrifice. I mean, think of the food and water it would take. So having merchants that were selling animals isn't even what Jesus was mad about. And we'll get to that. The same with money changers, with different coinage all over this part of the world. There was only the most pure coins that the temple could receive for any male over the age of 20 that needed to pay their temple tax. So these were, in some ways, necessary services for the Jews. The problem was that the marketplace that should be outside, uh, Commentators, historians think that this used to happen on the hillside across from the temple, a totally appropriate place. But that's not where it was happening this day. Now we see Jesus come into this area. He sees this and he clears it out. It was illegal and Jesus would have known it's illegal to have weapons in the temple itself. And so likely using materials that he found in the temple, he makes a whip. And again, Jesus has been depicted just full of rage and anger, much like you or I probably think of anger or rage. But I'll tell you this morning too, if you've ever tried to move animals without a whip of some kind, you'd know that Jesus needed that. It was a, there was a practicalness to him having a whip to drive the animals out in this large temple area that was probably pretty filled with animals. And I think that there are many overzealous depictions of Jesus in this. Certainly he, we know he was zealous because the text tells us that, but Jesus is his zeal was to cleanse his father's house from this current impurity. And we know that his, his zeal and his rage and anger to clear the temple weren't so much that the Roman garrison that was stationed right next to the temple took notice. Uh, In many places, uh, other other times when the Jews had uprisings, we read about that both in in the biblical text, but we read about that in other historians such as Josephus, where the Jewish uprisings are reported and, and we can read about that both biblically and extra biblically. And there's no note of that here in the text or extra biblical literature. So let's shake the kaleidoscope right now. There are two main things I think that we need to get from the Old Testament to help us understand what Jesus was doing and why he did it. 
I think that there's, we, we can understand it through the prophecy that foretold this event. And I think we need to understand the purpose of this part of the temple. Now, the purpose of the outer court of the temple, also known as the court of the Gentiles, Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7 says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Greed and convenience had replaced the purpose of the temple. And Jesus recognizes it immediately. We see the prophets scorn in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel for treating the temple like this. Not just now, but this is history's repeated. They've done this before. Listen to this in 50, Isaiah 56, 10 through 12. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way each to his own gain, one and all. Similar strong language against the nation of Israel is, um, is quoted from Jeremiah and, and actually the synoptic gospels. We read this in Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And now you have done all these things, declares the Lord. And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did at Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Again, think of this. Jesus, we've just seen him with his first sign, water into wine at Cana. We'll see Jesus work throughout Samaria with people that aren't really supposed to know him. And he comes into the temple, God's people, his chosen nation, the remnant. And they've turned this court for the nations into a marketplace, pushing them out. They're not a beacon for the nations. They're not proclaiming the message that salvation will come through the Jews. They've sought their own gain, pursued their own end. See, the court of the Gentiles was to be a place where the nation of Israel, and now in this scene, this remnant, the Jews, welcomed foreigners who worshipped God. These foreigners were to see salvation as coming through his people. The Jews had lost the vision for this. The Jews exchanged their role as messenger and announcer of God's rule and reign for political financial position. This is why Jesus needed to cleanse the temple. It's good for us also here to see the prophetic action of Jesus. This event was prophesied about in the Old Testament. We see another aspect of the kaleidoscope here. Zechariah 14, 21. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And Malachi 3, 1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will, he will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Verse 5 continues, I will be a swift witness against, among other things, those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, 
says the Lord of hosts. In this prophetic action, we see Jesus' zeal for his father's house to be a house of worship and prayer for the nations. This heart drove his actions in clearing and cleansing the temple. Now, picture the disciples, okay? How long have they been following him? The text doesn't make it exactly clear, but like, was it days, weeks, months? I, I don't know, but just imagine... They're standing there, they see him get upset, turn over tables, tell everybody to leave and drive the cattle out. Well, we know a little bit of what they're thinking because it says, and this is common in John, this happens a few times, twice today in in today's text, and it'll happen more, we'll see. Usually I think they're looking back at the event, okay? I think that they, they clearly have some kind of belief, right? They're following Jesus, but we know that the, the full measure of the Holy Spirit wasn't poured out until later. And we see that in the second part of our text today where they look back after Jesus' resurrection and they see, wow, what he was saying then, we get it now. I think that's probably what happened here. Psalm 69.9, they quote, which says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The disciples see Jesus' zeal and they interpret it like their, their father, David. The disciples see it through that lens. They remember David's words and what David went through and the scorn that he received for his zeal for the Lord's house. Jesus is willing to be scorned for his father's name. He's willing to cleanse his father's house even if it means the reproach of many will fall on him. And this brings us to the second part in your outline. Jesus, the restorer, verses 18 through 22. We need to understand Jesus's terminology to understand what he's telling him in his response to the Jews. Immediately following Jesus's actions to cleanse the temple, the Jews ask for a sign. Now, if the Jews just thought that Jesus was a crazy guy, they wouldn't have asked for a sign, Okay. They probably saw what he did. They may have, just like the disciples, maybe they had some inkling that this guy was a prophet. Okay? And so they thought, well, we'll ask him, we'll ask him to give us a sign, and that'll help us understand. So the Jews didn't consider that he was right to do what he did. They wanted to know why he and how he justified it. They had a defensive posture. They weren't really open to receiving critique about this. Now, they certainly would have known the prophecy of Zechariah and Malachi, but they sure didn't think it applied to them. And Jesus' answer to them about a sign, he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. This is also a prophetic announcement, guys. The Jews saw this as impossible. 46 years it took us to build the temple and this guy... The jury's out on him. We don't, we're just getting to know him. Like he thinks he's going to destroy it and build it in three days. Herod commissioned this building of the temple. This is the, the temple after the, the Jews had returned to Jerusalem after being exiled. Really happens kind of the intertestamental time. And Herod did it really to pacify the Jews. Okay. Cause there was a number of revolts and rebellions. Herod had about a thousand priests to cut the stones for this temple. Approximately 18,000 people worked on it over 46 years. And you can imagine their response when Jesus says, we're gonna tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. I don't know if they laughed or were mad. It was probably a mix of all of that. Like this guy must be crazy. There's no way he could raise this thing in three days. There's some important work we've got to understand. The outer court of the temple, okay, in English, we read temple two times. The outer court of the temple, this court of the Gentiles, the word is uh, hieros, okay? That refers to the whole temple mount and that outer court specifically. When Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, he's using a different word. It's called naos. It's the word that refers to the innermost part, the, the holy of holies where God's presence was said to dwell. 
the mercy seat in the temple is where the, the blood of sacrificed animals would be spread to allow God's presence to be with his people, to assuage his wrath. Jesus doesn't use these terms by accident. Certainly he means them. He's pointing to himself as a better sacrifice. A sacrifice that will be once for all time to absorb the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. A sacrifice that will replace the old system with the new blood of the covenant, which is his own blood. Now again, John includes a note about the disciples' witness to this. And I just, again, considering, wow, like you just cleared the temple out. Now you said you're going to destroy it and raise it in three days. You're being kind of aggressive, Jesus. Uh, I mean, among other things, I can't imagine somebody you've probably known for a limited time. How's he going to do that? Maybe they were a little unsure, insecure, maybe embarrassed. I'm sure that the faith that God had granted them to this point was fledgling wavering a little bit. Now they clearly didn't understand this moment until later after Jesus died, was buried for three days and rose again. They look back and say, that's what he was talking about. He's our better sacrifice. Perhaps as D.A. Carson has suggested, the disciples were beginning to clue into something. Quote, the sacrifices mandated by the Mosaic law included some built-in features that forced the thoughtful reader to expect a sacrifice beyond themselves. The law anticipated holiness from the heart. The system of priests looked forward to a perfect mediator. David and his kingdom announced in their very being the promise of a perfect David. This perfect David was before them this day. Jesus cleansed the temple and he also replaced it with himself to finally provide the kind of restoration that we need. All along the temple pointed to a better and final meeting point with God and humans. This universe altering truth is attested to throughout the New Testament including John. We've already gone through John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt among us literally means he tabernacled with us. The tabernacle was the, basically the mobile, before there was a temple, it was the mobile dwelling place of God. And Jesus, it says, tabernacled among us. He was the holy of holies. John is attesting to this numerous times. That he came to be among us as a new way to God. God's God's presence was in Jesus perfectly. John 14, 9 says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1, 3 says, he is the radiance, that's Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, ever since the garden, we've struggled against this separation from God. Of our own will, we walked away from God. We rebelled against him. And we needed restoration something to restore us to God. Jesus is the restorer of true worship. And he restores us to a right standing with God through his death and his resurrection. Jesus has the ability to atone for sins and make us holy. And that's what he's pointing to. Jesus is our perfect meeting place with God. And through his cleansing and restoration, we become his dwelling place. We're Christ's body. We are his temple as it's attested to throughout the New Testament. He lives in us. Now this was always meant from the beginning that we would dwell with God. Sin messed that up. Jesus restores it through himself. He's our meeting place with God. Now the magnitude of this is that we have access to God (laughs) through Christ. This old system where we can only come to the outer courts and prayer and and offer our worship there, we have a direct audience with Christ or with God through Christ. This was a major, major, major shift for these Jews on this day. The religion, the legalism that had become their God was being undermined 
and they hated it. We're going to see time and time again as we finish the book of John. Their external work for their own salvation was being measured against the scriptures and against God's own son. And it was and is found wanting. Now, this was a major shift for us Gentiles as well. We have access to God directly through Christ. By cleansing the temple and pointing to his death, Jesus is beginning to announce his time. Point number three in your outline, Jesus the knower. Really, this is a, this, these three verses are really a precursor to the next couple of weeks that we'll get Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman's encounter with Jesus where he sees their heart and he knows them. The text goes on to say the last, uh, that many believed in his name. Many saw Jesus' work and it says they saw his signs and we don't know all the other signs that he was doing or had done, but they saw his signs and they believed in his name. Now, Jesus uses signs to produce faith, to point people to himself, to glorify his father. We learn here that there's really two ways, I think, to appreciate Jesus. The first is to appreciate him for his signs. John chapter six, after Jesus fed the crowd of 5,000, many of those in the crowd went looking for Jesus later on. They found Jesus across the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. The text says this, when the crowds found Jesus, they asked him, when did you come here? And Jesus replied, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew the intent of their hearts. He knew that what they sought wasn't the bread of life, but that bread for their, it was bread for their stomach. They liked Jesus for his signs and the benefit that they could get from him, not for who he was. The crowds in Jerusalem wanted more of Jesus for these reasons, not for the second way we can appreciate Jesus' signs. The second way to appreciate Jesus is for what the signs say about who he is. Our text for today ends by telling us that he did not entrust himself to them, for he knew their hearts. Jesus knew the crowds in Jerusalem believed in him because of his signs, not because he was the Messiah, the cleanser and restorer that would bring them a new way to God. The real signs to see from Jesus, whereas the, the disciples saw them, that Jesus had zeal for his father's house. And then later, as they interpreted his resurrection, as him raising the temple in three days, they saw Jesus for the, for the Lord and Savior that he is. You see, it's not possible to fool Jesus. He's our preexistent Lord. He was and is and is to come. He knows all things. He sees clearly my heart and your heart. Now we've seen his signs, brothers and sisters. We know about the historical witness of his ministry, of his death, burial, and resurrection. Do you believe? Or do you just like his signs? Do you just like him for the benefits he provides? Or do you worship him because he saved you from your sin, producing righteousness in you so that you might be united to God? Karl Marx has famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. And I, quite frankly, agree with him. In many cases, it's just that. It's a comfort. It makes people feel better. And that's why they're religious. That's why they show up to church. That's why they like the term Christianity. Or are you fully aware of the pain and the stain of sin? And that drives you to a a deeper worship of this Jesus, this Savior who came and gave himself for you. 
Now, the rest of our time, we're going to talk about applying this. Now, what does applying this mean? Now, Jesus cleansed the temple and he opened it to us. We have access to God through Jesus. What does God require of us? What does God want us to do because of this? Well, application number one, recognize that Jesus is a better way to God by trusting his cleansing and restoration, not your own. Hebrews 4.13 says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Is your belief fickle, fledgling, or is it faithful? Now, fickle believers were like those in the crowds in Jerusalem who liked the signs, get rid of the Jesus, just give us the benefit. Now, this one doesn't really trust Jesus for cleansing and restoration. They honestly don't even think they need it. We've all become masters of our fig leaves at one point or another. Ever since sin entered, we cover up, we conceal ourselves, we want to hide. We try to make ourselves look better than we are. But we're laid bare before Christ and he knows us in our nakedness. Richard Phillips commentator, among others, have shared about this story about Malcolm Muggeridge's conversion. Malcolm Muggeridge's conversion to Christianity was hastened by a glimpse he received of his own wicked heart. He was working as a journalist in India and went to a river for a swim. As he entered the water, he saw an Indian woman bathing. He felt an impulse to go and seduce her, just as King David felt when he saw Bathsheba. Temptation storming his mind, he began swimming towards her. As he recalled his wedding vows, he just went faster. Proverbs 9.17, the voice of allurement called out, stolen water is sweet. And he swam more furiously still. But when he pulled up toward the woman and she turned, Muggeridge saw that she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. His first response was to accuse her. What a dirty, lecherous woman, he thought. But then it crashed upon him that it was not the woman who was lecherous. It was his own heart. The sooner that we lose the facade that we are really kind of good people and realize that at our core we're deceitfully wicked, we will see our need for Jesus, the cleanser, and Jesus, the restorer. An unbelieving friend of mine recently made a comment about a church that he grew up in. He said, yeah, every Sunday they just talked about hell and how we better live right or we're headed there. (laughs) This is a tragic, tragic misunderstanding. We need to understand the magnitude of our sin against the holy God and the eternal punishment for it. When we do that, we understand the magnitude of the sinless Savior dying for us. We don't achieve this by living right, brothers and sisters. Christ has achieved this for us. Don't leave here thinking this morning that the point of Jesus' knowing our hearts is just to tell us how wicked we are. The message isn't about how bad you are. The message is about how good Jesus is. He knows our hearts. That's why he came. He came knowing that we needed to be rescued. He came to save you. He came in love for you. He came to cleanse you. He came to restore you to a right standing before God. That is, he came to provide justification that you couldn't, that nothing else could. He came so that one day you'll be restored to perfect glory with him in heaven for eternity. Jesus didn't turn a blind eye toward depravity. Because he knew of it, he came to cleanse us and to restore us by dying for us. Perhaps your belief is fledgling, like we see the disciples time and again waver. And at one point or another, this is every one of us. If you're fledgling this morning, he knows your heart. He sees your struggle. He'll use every circumstance. He won't spare anything to draw you towards himself. His grace doesn't know an end. 
in the life of the believer. You cannot out his grace. He will receive you with open arms every time you sin, when you turn from your sin and come to him. Faithful. This is what we all strive for and by grace we'll grow in. Our goal is to run the race with endurance till the end. I love this prayer by J.C. Ryle that comes up in my prayer app from time to time. I pray that above all, that we may go straight on even unto the end, that we may never lose our first love and go back from first principles, that it may never be said of us that we are not the people we once were, but that we may go on consistently and faithfully, die in harness and finish our course with joy and the ministry which we have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. One day, brothers and sisters, we will be perfected in Christ. We will be united with him. We won't feel the infirmity of our flesh and we won't struggle with sin. This is what we press on towards. Application number two, recognize that Jesus is a better way to God by being zealous for pleasing God, not self. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, I'm 36. I'm part of the orange slices and trophy generation. What does that mean? Well, it means I'm part of the early, I'm barely a millennial. I usually make fun of millennials. It means I'm part of this early millennial crowd whose parents always wanted them to feel good about themselves. Everybody goes home with a trophy. Everybody gets orange slices. Everybody's a winner. Now, my dad's here. This isn't a critique on his parenting. Love you, dad. This is a general statement about some of the really cultural mores of this time. This, this mindset, it, it leads people who, to, to, who want to please themselves. They're zealous for self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction. The academic term that gets used in psychology circles is they're self-actualized. They're living fully alive because they're realizing their inner potential. They follow their heart and they follow their heart's zeal. Jeremiah 17, 9 and other scriptures are very abrasive to the orange slice and trophy generation. Instead of everybody's a winner, feel good about yourself. The word of God tells us that in reality, we're all morally bankrupt. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart's deceitful above all things. And it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? In contrast to this, the psalmist says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, not your own desires. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, is it wicked or should I delight myself in the Lord and get these desires? Well, we're beginning to glimpse the redeemed version of our heart. The deeper we are restored in Christ's work, the more our desires will reflect godly desires. But this side of heaven, we won't be rid of this infirmity. So the remedy for our deceitful heart is Christ's restoring work. He's given us a dwelling place with God. We ought to always and in every moment be completely dependent upon his word to judge our hearts, to discern the thoughts and intentions of it, Hebrews 4.12. Daily, we need to have faith. Daily, we need to measure our hearts against what his word tells us. Now, we're his temple now. Are our desires befitting God's holy temple where God's spirit lives? Brothers and sisters, we need to war against this when they don't look like God's desires. Now, certainly illustrative for what our zeal should be and what it should look like 
was the object of Jesus' zeal. Jesus was zealous for his father's house, for his father's name and glory. In particular, for the caretakers of his house, the Jews, to understand its purpose, that it would be a house that would reveal the father's glory to the nations. It was to be a house where all were called to come and know God through. Brings us to our third application point. Recognize that Jesus is a better way to God by telling people about Jesus. Jesus has replaced the temple. Jesus is a better way to God. He's the only way to God. We, his people, are his new temple. We're to announce this and tell others about it, to help others know this great message. We're all participants in revealing this revelation about Jesus as our way to God. Now, as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I was out of my shop, just sat down. I got a text message. A text message that many of you got probably the exact same one. It said this. It said, all LPS schools are on a secured perimeter due to a reported shooting at the STEM school in Highlands Ranch. LPS students will not be dismissed until district security and local law enforcement determine it is safe to do so. Stay tuned for further details. It was followed by a text from my wife who's trying to pick up my kids saying nobody's coming in or out of the school. They're all locked down. I went to Twitter, go to Douglas County, sheriff, feed, eight students shot, one dead. I know there's grandkids of some in our church that go there. Friends of some of you go there. Maybe it's neighbors, kids who go there. I'm sure at some level, every one of us this week has wrestled hard with what our response to this is. What do I do as a citizen? What do I do with my vote? What do I, how do I morally process this? What do, how do we handle this? Well, let me suggest the way that you can speak into this situation spiritually. All we have to offer is Christ. I was at the gym working out probably an hour or two later. Took Isabella, dropped her off at swim lessons. And I'll, I'm going to be honest, I was angry. Man, I was angry. I'm so tired of this stuff. Right? We all are. After I, I prayed, you know, initially I went to the gym and the only thing I think is I got to work out because I'm so mad right now. I'm so mad. I'm working out and I've got my headphones in and a song comes on by Ed Sheeran. Okay? I like some of his music. Let's be honest. You got to be discerning. Take thoughts captive. Listen to these lyrics from his song. Ain't got a soapbox I can stand on, but God gave me a stage, a guitar, and a song. My daddy told me, son, don't you get involved in politics, religion, or other people's quotes. I'll paint the picture. Let me set the scene. I know when I have children, they will know what it means. And I pass these things, and I pass on these things my family's given to me. Just love and understanding positivity. We could change the whole world with a piano. Add a bass, some guitar, grab a beat, and away we go. Sing, love could change the world in a moment, but what do I know? Love could change the world in a moment, but what do I know? I'll paint the picture, let me set the scene. I know I'm all for people following their dreams. Just re-remember, life is more than fitting in your jeans. It's love and understanding positivity. I'll paint the picture, let me set the scene. You know the future's in the hands of you and me. So let's all get together, we can all be free. Spread love and understanding, positivity. It's actually a good workout song. It's got a good rhythm, beat keeps moving. But on this day, brothers and sisters, the shallowness of this message and this song 
couldn't have been more stark to me. I almost lost it. I almost started bawling in the middle of my workout. This is the message that the young people in our schools and our neighborhoods are bombarded with. My kids, your kids, our, our kids in our neighborhoods. This is the message that they're going to get blasted with. Follow your dreams. Just love and be positive. The future is in our hands. If we will just work together and spread love and understanding and positivity, we can all be free. Common grace comes to everyone in different measure. I'm all for encouraging civil discourse, positivity. It's one of my top five strengths finders is positivity. And understanding, but it will not free us. We are slaves to one thing or another. And our message is this. We've been separated from God by sin. That's everyone. This isn't our final home. We're sojourners. We're exiles called to spread a message about the good news that Jesus, God's own son, came to provide us a better way to God and freedom from our sin. He came, he lived, he died, and he rose that temple, his body, in three days, defeating death. He defeated Satan. God is just, and he punished his innocent son on our behalf for his glory and for our life and joy. We are freed from sin, brothers and sisters. While Christ tarries, we wait for his new creation and we recognize that Jesus is the only way to God by telling people about him. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. We're going to sing a song as we close. Brothers and sisters, this call as his people to tell others about the good news. This is, I stand on God's word as my authority. This is biblical news for us. How can we not do it? In face of tragedy and suffering everywhere, this is the best news we could get, is that one day we will be cleansed from all of it. We'll be restored to perfect fellowship with God. And we're in this in-between time where we wait. We wait with hope. We have hope because of Christ. This is our message. This is what we have. And this is more than a song. It's uh, a prayer with music. And so please, in honor of our Savior, please stand and make this, make this your prayer. It's a beautiful song, but again, allow the words to stir your heart and uh, pray them as you sing.
and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me oh father use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you Father, please make these words our prayer continually from this time on. Now, Lord, we would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from us. Oh, Father, use our ransomed lives in any way you choose and let our song forever be our only boast is you. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is our life. You're dismissed.